Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. You are now entering the Freedom Hunt Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. A terrorist attack in New York City. Team, good to have you with me, but under the circumstances, it is a a difficult, a a dark day here where I am broadcasting from in New York. uh, We have eight, eight confirmed dead in a vehicle attack here in New York. Uh, We have one suspect in custody, and there are all of the questions that You're used to hearing at this point far too frequently. How could anybody do this? Why would anyone decide to rent a truck, which is what happened here, and then get the truck up to speed and mow down as many innocent men, women, and children as possible? I know the uh, area where this occurred well. It's a part of the city I've walked along and spent time in more times than I can remember. I, like many of you, I'm sure, I'm just so sick of terrorism, of of having to be concerned with terrorism, of this notion of, of a jihad that individuals who have never even set foot necessarily in conflict zones in the Middle East or elsewhere where there is an active jihad underway will take it upon themselves after self-radicalization, which seems the most likely case here, although we do not know the specifics about this individual's background quite yet, other than that he yelled reportedly Allahu Akbar as he exited the vehicle. Let me give you some of the um, background of exactly what happened here as we go on air and understand that there are there are uh, facts coming in literally as we are on air. The uh, NYPD had a press conference about an hour before we, we came on the airwaves here, and this is what they said. At, eight, at 3.05 p.m. Eastern Time, the suspect was headed southbound in a rented Home Depot truck and struck a number of pedestrians and bicyclists along the street. The truck then collided with a school bus at Chamber Street where two adults and two children were injured. After the collision, the driver, a 29-year-old male, exited the vehicle brandishing two weapons. A police officer assigned to the first precinct confronted the uh, suspect and shot him in the abdomen. The suspect was taken to a hospital. Police recovered a paintball gun and a pellet gun. So uh, a clear vehicle attack. Guy yelling Allahu Akbar, 
This is the jihad hitting home here in New York City. That's what this is. And it is uh, heartbreaking. I think about uh, the families tonight. There are at least eight families, many individuals who have received a, a, a terrible call that, that no human being should ever get. Your loved one was out walking, bicycling, enjoying what is overwhelmingly a peaceable and peaceful and ordered and pleasant city, and just viciously murdered, their lives extinguished by a sadist, a maniac, who thinks that his interpretation of ancient words and probably some online exhortations to be some kind of holy warrior, a, a mujahideen, that that gives him or gave him license to run people over, crush them, kill them, here in New York, here in my hometown. Uh, the, the NYPD is doing everything they can uh, with the uh, JTTF, the FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Force, to make sure there are no follow-on attacks, no follow-on incidents. I think those are unlikely. They have to be vigilant, though. They have to be prepared for that possibility. And there will no doubt be additional information that we get about this individual's uh, background, about his... Um, possible postings on social media. But I, mean, I will tell you, I, I was, we were doing this uh, this show in the first months of the show in, in downtown Manhattan, maybe a 10-minute walk from where this terrorist act occurred. Point of the reason I'm telling you that is just because it could happen anywhere in this city, in any city. It could happen anywhere in the country. They want us to live in fear, and so they create a narrative through their vicious violence of no one is safe. You're not safe no matter where you are. Doesn't matter what you do. We will bring this into your streets. We will bring it into your homes, into your backyard. All because of jihad. Maybe this, uh, maybe this particular, I, I, I use words like deranged. Sometimes language fails us here. There's no way to, to properly or, or totally encapsulate the evil on display at an incident like this. Uh, that this could be viewed by, and will be viewed, no doubt. I'm assuming that we will have some declaration on social media from the Islamic State just within a matter of hours. They will likely claim this. They claim the Las Vegas shooting, which I thought was them just trying to get attention, but the Islamic State, whether they had any inspirational impact on this or inspiring impact on this or not, I think it is uh, very likely that they will. They have not yet, but I think it's likely they will claim this attack, that they will declare that they inspired this. They have lost, as I have told you, in Iraq and Syria, they no longer have the capital of their caliphate, which means that it's not really worthy of the name caliphate anymore, is it? It is not anymore an Islamic state. 
It is the remnants of what was once a jihadist enterprise in the Middle East and with its affiliates around the world. But the idea lives on, and the idea may have been visited upon us in the form of grotesque violence here today in New York City. Um, I have a report here. As I said, I'm on air and we're getting new information. And if you're just joining, I'm updating everyone listening on the terrorist attack that occurred just a few hours ago here in New York City. Law enforcement's already declared it a terrorist attack, so we don't have to sit around and uh, wait for there to be some debate over, oh, can we call it a terror attack or was this a hate crime or was this it's a terrorist attack? Until proven otherwise, this is a terrorist attack. And it was clear very early on that the overwhelming likelihood was that this was a jihadist terror attack. But here's what I have from, uh, from news reports right now. Saifulo Saipov was identified in news reports as the driver accused of ramming a Home Depot rental truck into people on a bike path in lower Manhattan, killing at least eight and injuring multiple more in a frightening act of terror that unfolded almost in the shadow of the World Trade Center Memorial. New York police and other authorities declined to release the 29-year-old suspect's name in an early evening press conference after the Halloween afternoon attack, but the mayor publicly and quickly called the car ramming an act of terror ABC News and other media outlets named the suspect as Saifulo Saipov of Tampa, Florida. According to CBS News, the terror suspect is Saifulo Habibulevich Saipov, apparently from Uzbekistan. He is an Uzbek national who was not born in the United States, according to NBC So if this is true, if this is in fact the case, there will be um, political discussions here. There will be a uh, series of debates that result from this. This would be a case of an an Islamic immigrant to the United States who in the uh, most profane and disgraceful way possible chose to show his displeasure with the country that I'm sure at one point he couldn't wait to get to took him in sure lived a better life here than he had any prospect of in Uzbekistan but Istan is Farsi for land of this is how you have Afghanistan Uzbekistan Tajikistan And these stands, as they are known, are Muslim-majority countries, almost entirely Muslim for the most part. There are some uh, minor ethnic and religious groups that are not Islamic and some, but overwhelmingly Afghanistan uh, and the other stands are uh, Muslim countries. And as I'm sure many, many will be telling you, there is in fact a terrorist group that is indigenous to Uzbekistan, the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan. So that may very well have no tie whatsoever to this individual, but you will be hearing at least about the possibility of uh, ties to that radical entity or other radical entities. It's not clear, right? Because you could be an Uzbek who travels 
to join ISIS. You could be an Uzbek who fights in Afghanistan and has connections to the uh, Taliban or to uh, the Islamic State in Afghanistan, right? These are all questions that are unanswered. I'm just taking you in the direction of where this investigation and where the discussion is likely to go. Um, But here we have a Muslim immigrant to the United States based on the reporting renting a heavy vehicle in what is very similar to other mass casualty vehicle attacks that have occurred in Europe and even some vehicle attacks in this country. Uh, There are patterns to these attacks. We can look and see exactly how each one is uh, prepared for and perpetrated, but there's not much that can be done to avert this. There's not a lot in the security takeaways, although people are going to talk about immigration. What did we miss? What did we miss here when it comes to this individual? Was, did he show signs of radicalization? How long was he in the country? Was he made a permanent resident? These are all questions that I, I, I know this is where this will go, um, but I do not have all of the data yet to take you much further on some of those analytic threads. Putting aside the data for a second, putting aside all that analysis and counterterrorism, deep dive and all that for a moment. This just does, it doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to live in a world where uh, maniac after maniac proclaiming a religious not just justification, but a, a religious necessity for this violence, uh, part of an, of the jihad and, and Islamic holy war. We, we don't have to live in a world where they are killing people like this. Um, there are many parts of the globe where uh, we are not living in the same degree of constant anxiety, or people are not living in the same degree of constant anxiety about the prospect of a Mass casualty vehicle terror attack, as we see here. This does not happen in some countries. We will look at what the similarities and differences are between the countries where it does and where it doesn't. We will look at the immigration policies. We will look at security and surveillance and radicalization and counter-radicalization programs. But the answers we get from it all will be imperfect. And we will be left mourning our dead and trying to support the families of the fallen once again. But as somebody who is part of, and I know many of you listening were on the front lines as a result of, you were wearing the uniform, whether for law enforcement or for the military overseas, were part of what we used to call the war on terror. This is just a reminder. It's certainly not on the scale of 9-11, but it is the same sick and evil ideology that inspired this attack today and could could inspire and will, if we do not prevent it, the next 9-11 scale attack. All right. uh, If you have any thoughts, any questions, just something you want to share with uh, with the team, with the folks listening, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. We're going to be talking more about this terrorist attack in New York City. And I'll be uh, right back with more. Stay with me. All right. So we're following very closely this uh, terror attack here in New York City. Eight people killed and uh, more wounded. A uh, 
reported by NBC News, Muslim immigrant, recent immigrant, last few years, to the United States, uh, rented a Home Depot truck and ran down as many people as possible in lower Manhattan, very near the uh, 9-11 memorial, in the, old, the site of what was the World Trade Center. And now everyone's trying to figure out, could it have been stopped? Are there any co-conspirators to this individual out there? The, the questions that we are all very used to at this point because these attacks happen far too frequently, have been happening far too frequently in, in recent years, including here at home in America. Uh, once again, this could happen anywhere, and that's what the terrorists want in terms of perception. They want us to be thinking about how anybody could be a target. No one is safe. Uh, we can't let them win that psychological battle with us. Lee in North Carolina, uh, good to have you on. Hey, yes. Yeah, thank you. I'm uh, a veteran, and um, I hear what you, your, your message about um, when you stated about how it doesn't make any sense, and it really doesn't. I was listening uh, recently to a program where they stated that some of the uh, students that are at um, West Point and a few of the other military academies are uh, uh, have a, pro, a program that they uh, put into, into place called 2023. These would be the the military, future military leaders uh, in, in that year, and that they have a war game that they are, uh, one group of them will blow up the Harlem Tunnel in New York, and then the other ones will uh, go out and attack, U.S. will attack Africa. And I'm, I'm looking at that, those kind of situations with the drone bases that set up over there. And would you say that, you know, with the resources that, um, especially with the, the, uh, the, the natural resources around the globe, there's plenty enough for all of us. And that goes for the U.S., ISIS, and everyone else. So, so are, are you, are you trying to get me to, to, to say, or, or not try to get me to say, but is your point here, Lee, that, uh, that the whole the whole idea the whole ideology of jihadism is just nonsensical garbage that is hateful and destructive. Or where are we taking this? I'm saying that 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 the that, that jihadist is definitely uh, destructive and it's, and it's hateful. But at the same time, I'm saying that the the, the U.S. Uh, is looked at as you know, but the resource bases that we all have in this country and in this world that we should not be able to share it equally without having to have ISIS or uh, U.S. drone bases in Africa, different I'm, things like that. I'm saying that we should be able to... to uh, I'm not I'm not clearly, I'm not clear. I'm, apologies. Thank you for calling and thank you for your service, but I'm not clear on, I'm not clear on this point. I missed it, and I'm not trying to talk over, but we're going into a break here. Uh, we'll have more updates for you on the terrorist attack here in New York City. Uh, more information coming out with each, uh, each hour as we learn... Who this individual was who perpetrated a mass casualty attack using a vehicle here in New York City, right where we are broadcasting from. Not far from where we're broadcasting from, actually. Uh, We'll be back with more. Stay with me. Welcome back, team. We are uh, updating you here on the terrorist attack in New York City. Eight people killed, over a dozen injured earlier today uh, here in my hometown and where we're doing the the broadcast from live um, in New York. And... The suspect here has been identified, at least by some news outlets, although they have, I, I will note that they have gotten these identifications wrong in the past. This is not a police identification yet. The suspect is in 
is in surgery right now. He has a gunshot wound to the abdomen. He is expected to survive, which make of that what you will, but at least it means it's likely that there will be an ability to uh, perhaps question and get to the bottom of this, although we already really know, I suppose, what we have to know here. It's a jihadist attack. Um, everything about this lines up with what we've seen in the past. There's actually video of this guy running around uh, in New York City in the middle of a, of a busy street, a busy crosswalk. I, I know this part of town uh, well where he was engaged in this uh, mass, uh, mass murder spree. Eight dead, perhaps more, over a dozen wounded. They were rushed to hospitals. They had to shut down two of the local highways here in New York City, the West Side Highway and the and what's the uh, FDR Drive, just so they could evacuate casualties as quickly as possible because of their critical injuries, um, a dozen of them. And the suspect is now being identified by more and more news sources. I mean, look, they have him in custody, right? I mean, they probably have his ID on him. Uh, this is this is not hard to figure out for law enforcement. And they're saying he's a 29-year-old from Uzbekistan, a foreign Muslim immigrant to the United States, came here in the last few years. You can imagine that the discussion over Trump's enhanced security procedures for countries that are known to be uh, hotbeds of terrorism, which include some non-Muslim countries, as we know, North Korea is on the list. Uh, But that's looking like it makes some sense, doesn't it? You see, one of the problems that the left has, one of the things the left has never figured out about this whole issue of terrorism is that you know, we, we understand that when it comes to American citizens who engage in uh, criminal activity or terrorism or you know, whatever the case may be, that's we try to limit that. We punish it. We do what we can to prevent it. But that will be with us. No society is perfect. But when it comes to the importation of terrorism from abroad. Unlike the left, many of us, many Americans say to ourselves, you know, as much as it may seem a little unfair to some people, as much as it doesn't uh, line up with the, hey, what about that poem that was later added to the Statue of Liberty, which we know there have been disputes in the media about all that. The fact of the matter is that if limiting immigration from certain predetermined countries based on their history of security risk, based on their history of being, whether state-sponsored or not, hotbeds of terrorist activity, that even even if that prevented one attack, but stopped, I don't know, thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of people from that country from entering the United States, a lot of, a lot of Americans would say, you know what? Protecting our own people. That means everybody, okay? Everybody in this country. This is where the left goes, oh, what do you mean by our people? I mean Americans. Every color, creed, ethnicity, you name it. Americans. But protecting the American people first should be the federal government's first priority. Not making countries that have no particular 
uh, leverage or uh, deep ties to us uh, that are often problematic for us and that represent risks because of a disproportionate percentage of their population having ties to terrorism, not making them happy. That That's not a, pro- a primary consideration for the federal government. Do I think that assuming these reports are true about this individual, um, this individual who comes from Afghanistan, I mean, sorry, Uzbekistan, uh, if the reports about him coming from Uzbekistan are accurate, maybe now we'll be looking at the relationship we have with that country with regard to how much they can vet extreme vetting. But, you know, all of the ridicule that Trump and his national security team has endured from this media, all of the ridicule, and here we see a, a an incident that, in so many ways, lines up with exactly what they're trying to prevent. And no one's saying that it is perfect or without cost and frustration for some to prevent foreigners from certain countries, predetermined, pre-screened, certain countries from being able to enter the United States without, look, every case is an individual. There's always the possibility of an individual exception. If we have the, the world's greatest brain surgeon uh, is going to be coming to the United States from the Sudan. I'm sure they can waive any restrictions on the Sudan. Or, you know, if it's from Iran, I'm sure we can waive the restrictions for that one case because we want that individual to be here or that individual is is worth going through the process for. But this is this is there's a fundamental misconception that the left and that progressivism has embraced, and that is that we we owe the rest of the world something. That you and I Obey federal law, pay our taxes, and many of you listening serve in the military, serve your country. We register. I mean, I'm registered, register for a draft, right? I mean, we do all of that, but we should be treated really almost no differently by our own government than the nationals of other countries, particularly countries that are dysfunctional, are failed states, are full of radicalization and regressive ideas that women are property that violence is the best way to solve problems that Mike mate might makes right that there is a book that was written in the seventh century that gives sadists free license to do whatever they want in the name of some global struggle that they can't really define other than to suggests that their belief system is the supreme, the only belief system. It is a form of supremacy. The left always talks about white supremacy. They are much less interested in talking about Islamic supremacy. But that is exactly what the jihad is. It is a means of subjugating the rest of the world and claiming a celestial license in the process. It is a way to dehumanize Anyone, including Muslims who don't go along with this interpretation, I should add. But to dehumanize anyone who is not a fellow believer. Their lives are worth nothing to a jihadist. In fact, taking their lives, ruining the lives of of others that are affected by this violence, family members and and friends and co-workers. uh, That is all part of their plan. That's what they want to do. They seek to destroy all that is good in society so they can remake it in the image of 7th and 8th century theocrats, autocrats, 
who obeyed the laws that they made up as they went along. Middle of the Middle East. That's what this jihad is all about. Will we find out that this uh, recent Muslim immigrant from Uzbekistan had particular gripes about U.S. foreign policy? Very possible. Will we find out that there was some uh, inciting incident in his mind? Maybe it's just Trumpism. There is the possibility. I, I will note this here. And again, I've, I give you the facts when we start out the segment. I'm giving you the facts as we go throughout the show. I'm also giving you my analysis, what I foresee, but I cannot see the future. So I do not know. So I, I try to be very specific. I don't want any of you uh, taking what I say as, as fact when I don't mean it to be. So that's why if I sound like I'm mechanical as I go through some of this, it's because I like to make very clear delineations. It was a, a little bit frustrating from just the perspective of trying to be as accurate as possible. I, I was on uh, Fox for uh, basically on and off for the hour right before I came on the show, and they brought on somebody right after me who said, you know, I, I, I disagree. We know everything we have to know to know that this incident is terrorism right now. And I already had said that it's probable, but we didn't know the we, we at that point didn't know if there was actually any gunfire involved or where the gunfire came from, who the suspect was, that he yelled Allahu Akbar. We didn't have necessary pieces. Now, yeah, I can play the guessing game, too, but the guessing game is not helpful. Taking facts and extrapolating beyond, you know, this is the difference between saying it seems very likely it's terrorism. We'll know within the hour, which we did, and saying, oh, yeah, it's terrorism, because that same impulse would have meant that the vehicle uh the vehicle attack in times square where it's just some crazy guy uh, a while back who ran into a bunch of people because he had lost it that was also you would have also called that terrorism right so the facts matter here the specifics of all this matter but looking looking into where i think this will will go you will have a debate now around this individual and and we're going to hear from him right so that's also oftentimes in these incidents the terrorist is uh no longer gone, uh, no longer around, right? He's gone. He's blown himself up or he's been shot or he's been killed in the process of the attack. And so then it's just piecing together the social media profile and trying to figure out what was stated. And, you know, then you're putting together your own analytic mosaic of what of what happened, of what's go- of what was going on. In this case, we will likely it's assumed that the suspect will make it through surgery. Um, but I think that we will hear a discussion here about how maybe he was radicalized because of the Trump administration's anti-Muslim policies. Just get ready for it. I don't know that that's going to happen, but if you are right now the editorial directors and writers of, you know, MSNBC and CNN and that one at all costs avoid the narrative of, OK, so a foreign Muslim immigrant comes to the United States, kills a bunch of people in New York City because of an ideology that is at war with us. And maybe we should do something about that. They want to avoid that narrative. So what's the what will the counter narrative be? I'm trying to get in front of this here. So we're all prepared for it because it's jarring even when you expect it. I think it's likely the counter narrative from the left on this because I've seen it before. I mean, I, I was there over at CNN after the Nice attack. What a bunch of imbeciles pretending to be experts were all saying, well, this is because Europe doesn't do a good enough job with its immigrants. There were about 80 people murdered on Bastille Day 
And they what do they what do they offer up as analysis? Well, Europe doesn't do a good enough job with its immigrants. That's what they were saying at CNN the day of that attack. So I don't think I'm way off here by suggesting that it is very likely that they will try and find some way to make this about Trump and where Trump is somehow the problem. Believe I know it's it's almost unthinkable right now to any rational sentient person that anybody would do this, but trust me. There's a lot at stake here. They just were hoping to take this Manafort indictment and run with that all week and all about the Russia collusion and lots of unfounded allegations they were going to pile on top of this and anonymous sources to bolster the party line about how this administration was going down in flames. And now we have to deal with the reality of a terrorist attack in the biggest city in this country that has been hit time and time again that would have been hit many more times if it were not for the valiant efforts of the FBI, the NYPD, and other law enforcement organizations. And our commander-in-chief right now is the one who's saying maybe we should look at limiting in specific and smart ways, limiting the importation of those who come from areas that are rife with radicalism. Just maybe we should have that conversation. They do not want you to take that away from all this. They're going to construct another narrative to counter it. So just be ready for that. All right, we're going to have much more. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. I will be right back. As I see the photos and uh, video of this uh, wrecked, rented truck, a uh, Home Depot truck, used in this terrorist attack here in New York City, uh, reminds me, uh, seeing the vehicle reminds me of what was written in al-Qaeda's Inspire magazine. Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula had Inspire back in 2010, going back seven years now. And here's what they were telling in this online document that you could, you know, I used to read every episode of or read every um, edition of Inspire as it would come out. It was part of my job at the time and understand what's going on in the world of terrorism and try to counter it. But here's what they wrote in 2010 in Al-Qaeda's online magazine for adherents around the world. And just keep it in mind as we look at the images out of New York City right now. Use a pickup truck as a mowing machine, not to mow grass, but to mow down the enemies of Allah. You need a four-wheel drive pickup truck. Stronger the better. You would then need to weld on steel blades on the front end of the truck. Pick your location and timing carefully. Go for the most crowded locations. Narrower spots give less chance for people to run away. To achieve maximum carnage, pick up as much speed as you can while still retaining good control of your vehicle. Strike as many people as possible in your first run. Keep in mind that as soon as people realize what you are up to, they will scatter. That exhortation from Inspire Magazine is... A play-by-play of exactly what occurred here in New York City. Piece by piece. I mean, other than the welding of the blades on the front of the truck, but in terms of picking the location and timing, making sure to go for crowded areas. A bike path, and keep in mind that I've walked on this path countless times. I used to live right next to it here in the city, and it is next to a highway. So somebody would be able to pull off onto this bike path but it's a it's a narrow area and at some places you're blocked in 
and people walk on it as well as bike on it. So you would have a straight line of bicyclists and pedestrians on this pathway to run down. And for blocks and blocks, which is what it looks like happened in this incident. But the target selection here and the choice of uh, the, lo- the location and he was, it's believed that this uh, terrorist was driving 40 to 50 miles an hour. So he got it up to speed. I mean, he he went by the Inspire Al-Qaeda playbook here, literally, whether he knew it or not. This is exactly what they were telling their followers to do. And that he was running around with a BB gun and a paintball gun afterwards might have been for, as I see it, two reasons. One, just to inspire greater fear in those around him and to just create more of a spectacle of the event. But also, suicide by cop was a possibility. If he wants to be a true shaheed, a martyr, then he would want to die at the end of this operation. Now, he was shot by the NYPD in the abdomen. They did not kill him. He's in the hospital now. But his possession of a BB gun and a paintball gun may have been because he figured, look, he might not be able to die easily by driving the vehicle. But by waving a gun around or what looks like a gun in the streets of New York with the NYPD everywhere after a mass casualty incident, very likely he'd be killed. But he wasn't. Welcome back, team. We are staying on top of this event in New York City that is uh, just heartbreaking. A terrorist attack. Uh, a Muslim immigrant from Uzbekistan ran over and killed eight people with a vehicle a vehicle attack, just like what we've seen in Oh, a number of a number of cities, uh, particularly in in Europe, um, you've had. The, and I should also note these somehow don't get counted by some, or they're not given the same degree of attention. But in the media, uh, but vehicle attacks in Israel and Jerusalem, and specifically at the hands of Palestinian uh, terrorists, th- those have been going on for quite some time. But you had the. London-Westminster Bridge attack uh, earlier this year. In, uh, in Stockholm on April 7th, ISIS claimed responsibility for an attack there. Did not get nearly as much attention. In London, the uh, London Bridge attack of, uh, 6th of uh, June 3rd. And then Darren Osborne, an anti-Muslim vehicle attacker in London on June 19th. In Paris on June 19th, a 31-year-old French national was the uh, vehicle attacker there. An Algerian national, 36-year-old, was the attacker in a Paris suburb. I don't have more info on the 619 attack, but the August 9th attack in the Paris suburbs, uh, vehicle attack there. Um, You also had someone uh, use a vehicle as a weapon of murder in Charlottesville. And in Barcelona, on August 17th, ISIS claimed responsibility for that. Remember, the Barcelona incident was a Plan B effort by that terrorist cell to engage in a mass casualty attack when they had blown up the bomb factory they were operating in an abandoned house outside of Barcelona. And then uh, there was the Edmonton attack. Uh, On September 30th, that was a Somali refugee. And now we have on uh, October 31st, the 
Halloween attack here in New York City. Um, that reminds me, there was uh, there has been some discussion underway about what countermeasures needs to be taken in an imminent sense, meaning what do we do in response to this to make sure that there aren't more of these, uh, more incidents like this. And they're saying they may cancel the Halloween parade here in New York City, uh, or they were thinking they would. As of now, they are not canceling it. And I think, I think that is the right decision. I think that as much as we can and as much as our analysis of the threat level indicates that it is safe for us too. And, you know, we have to continue on with our lives, you know, and I know this, there's a tension here, a tension between a return to normalcy and the normalization of terrorism, not the same thing, a return to normalcy here is that you go, you go forward with your life, that you don't allow this to change your day-to-day activities, and, and we don't allow this to change who we are as a people, as a country. But normalization would be, well, this is just, this is, this is just going to keep happening and happening. There's nothing we can do about it, right? This is, it's like street crime. This is not like street crime. As I was saying to you, there are huge parts of the world that do not suffer these kinds of attacks. You, know, you do not have mass jihadist vehicular homicide incidents in Japan, for example. You just don't have them. Some of you could come up with your reasons. of a very large country. You just do not have these jihadist incidents there. And you could come up with your own reasons as to why. Uh, you do not have them in other countries as well, where there is an absence of radicalized individuals from within the Islamic faith. So this does not have to be. This is not the cost of just living life, right? We, we do not have to accept that there will be vile, evil, radicalized uh, Islamists who engage in this behavior. But it is a multi-generational fight, as many have said. And I know that there's also, because this is, in the post 9-11 era, we've been hearing these storylines. We have been hearing for quite some time about exactly what I'm talking about now. This is going to be a long fight. We, we still look, we still have troops in Afghanistan. We still have troops in Iraq. We have troops in other people are finding out now that we have troops in Niger. We have troops in the Philippines. We have troops in, you know, the, we have troops obviously in Okinawa and in South Korea. And we have troops all over the world and Some of them are in conflict zones. Some of them are there to prevent the area from becoming a conflict zone or, in the case of Germany, from helping out in whatever conflict zones and being able to deploy forces rapidly into conflict zones. But we are still very much in what was called for, at least my time in government, the GWAT, the Global War on Terror. And it is multifaceted and multi-pronged which is just one way of saying this is a big mess. A lot of complexity in this fight because within a population of 1.7, call it, billion Muslims, you have a large, unfortunately far too large, but overall a small subset of the population, but let's say it's 5 or 10% that are 
hardliners, Islamists, believe in political Islam, believe there's no separation between Islam and the state. And then within that, you have a subset within a subset of those who are jihadists who believe that they have a religious and therefore moral obligation to inflict violence and mayhem upon anyone who is outside their circle of belief. And even if that's only 1% or 0.0001% of almost 2 billion people, it's a very big problem. It's a problem that plays out day in and day out, not just in countries like Iraq and Afghanistan where we are in active combat operations, but across Muslim-majority sub-Saharan Africa, on the Indian subcontinent, uh, in obviously all across the Middle East and in parts of Europe as well where there are radicalization issues and then here at home on a lesser level than what we've seen in Europe in recent years. But nonetheless, we should never forget that uh, we are the country and this is the city where I'm coming to you now on this broadcast uh, in the aftermath of a mass casualty terror attack. We are the city that suffered the single biggest terrorist attack in the history of the jihad. And we are the country, we the American people, that suffered the biggest attack in the history of jihad. So there are no uh, simple answers here. There are no quick fixes. And this will very soon, I'm sure, become yet another uh, back and forth over the politics of this. There will be people who just don't want to believe a certain narrative. They, they won't want to hear that the fact that we all would have guessed as soon as it was clear that a vehicle was used in a deliberate attack, we would have guessed that it was a uh, radicalized Muslim. What does that tell us? Now, that doesn't mean it's always right. I said would have guessed. I did not guess. I waited until the facts came in. I was on air live when this was happening over at Fox. But if somebody had said, what do you think? And I did say early on when we just knew that there was a vehicle and mowed people down, looked deliberate, the probability is that this is a jihadist. Well, the fact that it's a probability in a country of 320 million people where only 1% of the population is Muslim is a major concern. This is worthy of continued debate and discussion. Why is it that 1% 1% of the U.S. population is the overwhelming, uh, overwhelmingly likely place from within which, that doesn't mean everyone, but from within which these incidents spring. What do we make of that? It's a very uncomfortable conversation for a lot of people to have. I, I understand that. You know, I, I try to be very clear about uh, making these delineations. I, I'm, I'm the, same, the same guy who's sitting here is telling you that, yeah, it's 1% of the country that per, that is the uh, ideological backdrop for far too much of the terrorism in the country, which is just statistically a fact. And they'll, they'll trot out the usual, you know, the Huffington Post in these places, the New York Times. They'll say, well, you know, if you take 9-11 out, then it's actually right-wing terrorism, which is the dumbest argument. It, the people who say this are either, they're either liars or imbeciles or both. And, you know, it's, it's a debate that once or twice they let me have over at CNN, but the people that tried to have it were so thoroughly schooled afterwards that they're like, well, we shouldn't have him on for that. That's probably a bad idea. Uh, anyway, I am the same guy who tells you that 
we have a moral obligation, I believe I even have said um, on TV, that we have a debt of honor to the Kurdish people. They're our friends. They're Muslims. They're allies. They're helping us in the war on terrorism. And when I point to what has happened in Kurdistan, where we have largely forgotten about and abandoned a close Muslim ally, it's not just in the near term that I see this as problematic because we owe them more, but also if we're going to be part of creating narratives where we have our Islamic allies and friends, and then we have radicals that we have to defeat, it's very important that when there are clear cases of these are our allies, our friends, they have been fighting and dying alongside us to defeat radicalism, yes, in their midst, but also outside of their own territory, in the case of the Kurds, that we hold them up and say, see, modernity and a, a civilized approach are quite possible within these communities. And when we have a a, a modern ally like we do with the Kurds. And this is true of the Jordanians. I mean, there are other instances of this as well, but the Kurds are just front of mind right now because what's happened with them. They've been abandoned, left to get pushed around and threatened and shot at by Shia militias who are ordering around Baghdad like a little puppet regime. The Baghdad government that only exists, thank you very much, because of the United States, because of some of you listening to this show who went over there and deposed a tyrant and then spent a few years trying to get the country to quiet down and let us turn on the lights and get the sewage flowing and get the schools opened. Imperialism was nonsense, the stuff that people were saying about U.S. forces during the Iraq war. And the Kurds knew it, and that's why they were with us. But. Who are our friends in the Muslim world and who are our enemies is a question that we as a country and certainly at the policy level of our government have to take very seriously. And we shouldn't miss opportunities to to show that for those who are with us, for those who want to be uh, living in a pluralistic society with rule of law, with uh, at least decent treatment of women and non-Muslim religious minorities and who are fighting for stability and, and a better future, we're with them 100%. For those who think that they're going to reinstall a, 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 or, or bring us back to a time that mimics the Prophet Muhammad and that they will be part of some supremacist ideology that will wipe all the rest of us off the map, and no. They are enemies that we cannot really negotiate with or find any common ground with. We just have to beat them on the battlefield and also on the battlefield of ideas. That's the... 30,000-foot view that we should take after an incident like today. That's what we will continue to face as we now go into yet another cycle of discussion over why. Why did it happen? What could we do to stop it? We do not have, uh, we do not have answers to those questions that bring much comfort. And we shouldn't pretend that we do either. Um, yes, we know it was jihadism, and yes, there are security measures we'll put in place, but how do you beat jihad, and how do you stop this from being a concern that we have to keep living with? I don't just want to live in a, in a world, in an America, where I don't have to worry about some jihadist psychopath mowing people down in a car. I want to live in a world where I don't have to wait in line at the airport anymore because we're worried someone is going to yell Allahu Akbar and blow it up or drive it into a building. That's the world I want to live in. It's not just beating the the vehicle attacks. I want this whole thing to stop. 
And it is possible. You know, when was the last time that you were worried about somebody from within the Buddhist faith or the Hindu faith hijacking a plane and running it into a building, attacking a public square where you were walking through, blowing up a car in a crowded marketplace? I'm guessing never has happened. This is just reality, my friends. We have to identify the source of the problem if we're going to be picking ways to defeat it that are actually going to be effective. So uh, I do want to talk to you about them and the Mueller investigation and all that has just been kicked off uh, to, the, to the side of for understandable reasons with all this. I do want to get into some more of that discussion with you coming up here on the show. And I don't know if I don't know if we're really going to have time to do. I suppose maybe we'll take a hard turn. Maybe if you will allow me, my friends, later on the show, I'll talk to you about the history of Dracula, just as an escape from all of this. I, I had planned much more on it, but given the day's events, it's changed my show plan. But uh, if you will allow me, we'll take a hard turn and go into some history and avoid a continuation of this discussion for the whole show, which is jihadism. So that'll be coming up later, and uh, stay with me. Whenever you have one of these terrorist attacks anywhere around the world, but especially here against the homeland, in this case here in New York City, uh, you have all this uh, back and forth on social media, and I just was struck by how a few commentators have been pointing out, you know, this is a reminder of, this is a reminder today of what the stakes are, of what really, what really matters, what the first obligation of government is. I mean, there was all this stuff going on this morning about uh, what the, the, the Kelly interview and, and his comments about the, his comments about the civil war. And you know, we need to be united and focused on issues like this. How do we make it so that we are safe walking down the street from acts of mass murder that for, for those who will say, as, uh, as many will, oh, well, you know, you're more likely to die in a, you know, you're more likely to die slipping in the shower than you are in a terrorist attack, which is always also, I find, dismissive and, and, a, and a bit disrespectful to the dead from terrorist attacks. But this is what they will say, right? They think there'll be these amateur statisticians that show up and want to tell you about how. I know. It's the threat's not that big. Well, let me tell all of those who would claim that that's the case that if it weren't for a multi-billion dollar security apparatus in this country, if it weren't for the efforts of the US military and our intelligence community abroad, as well as law enforcement efforts here at home, what happened today on the streets of New York City with this mass murder terror attack would be happening with much greater regularity. If you really want to get a sense of the scale of the threat here from jihad and why I've spent, why, why is it worth spending so much of our time today on the show other than just updating you on a breaking news event? Why does the, the background here matter? And why do we have to look at this from the context of an ongoing struggle that is global in scope? And that is really about the uh, survival of Western civilization and free societies. It's because if you look at all the attempted and thwarted attacks and start to understand that, you know, there could be thousands and thousands of people that would have been killed in these incidents were it not for first responders, law enforcement, were it not for armed, uh, you know, armed civilians, whatever, you know, putting this all together. And also, if you did not have this massive apparatus that was constantly vigilant of everything from lines at the airport to 
you know, DHS, all the things that it does, FBI, counterterrorism investigations, to concrete barriers on the street outside of buildings, and uh, the plans that have had to be put in place for major cities across this country in the event of a terrorist attack, if it weren't for all of that, it would be a lot worse, too. So don't let them minimize after this event. Another tactic of the left here, because they don't like this narrative. They want to they want to act like the real threat are, you know, the white nationalists of Charlottesville should be keeping us all up at night. Don't let them get away with minimizing the threat of jihadism against us here at home. It's not just about, although it is important to focus on the casualties as well, it's about the totality of the effort to undermine and destroy our society. We're going to uh, be back with more, including some uh, updates on the uh, Mueller investigation. We're not just going to talk about the terrorist attack today because there's some other things in the news cycle we should get to as well. I'll be back with all that. Stay with me. You know, turning our thoughts away from this horrific terrorist attack in New York City for a moment to the what had been until now uh, overwhelmingly the biggest uh, the biggest news story in the country until this incident here in my hometown of of eight killed in a vehicle attack in New York City, a terrorist attack here in the city. But I, I just want to give you some follow-on thoughts to what's been going on, what's been going on in uh, the you know aftermath of the uh, Manafort investigation and what's been happening with all of the uh, the rush in the media to try and find some narrative, to try and find some way to make this seem like it is a a bigger deal, a bigger incident than it actually is. Um, but the reality here is that I think the analysis that we gave you on the show yesterday, and I should note that it was I heard it repeated a lot the next day and other places. But we had I know I came out of the gate on the show yesterday telling you that this does not seem like to me what the media wants it to be. And uh, then they have to come up with some story to make it seem like it's bigger. And that's where we turn into or that's where the media turns to the narrative about how they must uh, they must be squeezing Manafort. There must be some way that they are using this uh, series, this twelve count indictment against him, to try and bring about a a way of a, a, a way of getting uh, you know a way of getting at tr- at Trump. Let's be honest. Uh, that's what this is all about. They're trying to get Trump. Manafort is, means nothing. I mean, see, if you go back and, and you look at what it was like in those early days of the Trump administration, uh, sorry, the Trump campaign, I should say, there were people who were showing up. I, I talked to people who, look, I'm not going to name names, but who were saying that they were foreign policy uh, you know, advisor to the Trump campaign or on some Trump advisory committee. And I'm like, who is this person? I've never heard of them in my life. It wasn't a well-oiled machine in that respect because it wasn't people from within the D.C. well-oiled political machine. None of this is surprising. None of this in any way is a uh, shock to us. And so that Manafort... You know, got involved and was made campaign chairman. And sure, did they not do the due diligence on him? They should have. Yeah. But can I also put out there, how the heck were they going to do this due diligence on it? There's this assumption because one of the, you know, one of the media talking points right now about this is, oh, look, you know, the, the Trump administration, they're so, you know, they're so haphazard and they uh, they don't do what they need to when it comes to all of their. Uh, all of their homework on individuals and all this. And I, I look at them I'm like, 
It's taken Mueller, a special prosecutor, months and months with a team of people who can pull, who have subpoena power, who can go to a judge and say, we want the most personal information possible. They may have even been running a wire. I mean, you know, the most personal information possible on this whole, uh, on Manafort and everyone around him. And then the media turns around and they say, oh, but Trump, you know, he didn't do the, he should have known Manafort was shady. How is Trump going to know that Manafort is stashing money from former dealings? And this is all, by the way, these are all allegations, right? But how is Trump going to know that Manafort's doing that? How is people going to know? I mean, the, he's accused. Let's understand. Manafort is accused of lying to the federal government on official forms. If that were, in fact, the case. Don't we couldn't we say it, it is fair then that it's likely it is likely that Manafort would also lie to a, a background investigator for the purposes of the campaign for his disclosure forms. So what, what are we to you know, what can we really take away from this? And the answer is that they've got Manafort on. Some pretty low-level stuff right now. I mean, are they really going to send him to prison for failure to register as an agent? If they can prove a money laundering conspiracy, okay, fine. Money laundering actually – money laundering is one of those charges where you think it wouldn't be that big a deal. Um, uh, but the reality is that if you get nailed on money laundering, you are going away for a long time. It's It's a surprisingly – it is a surprisingly rough sentence that you can get for money laundering. And I, I just want to point out that – and this was a critical – I mean, Andy yesterday – look, Andy McCarthy, as I said, and, and I, you know I don't – I'm not somebody who every guest who comes on, oh, this person's amazing. I mean, Andy is among the best analysts of all legal issues. He's also a great political analyst, but among the best analysts of legal issues, you'll find anywhere – on any network, on any show, and clearly, right? I mean, I say it, you know, Rush says it. I mean, this is this is known. It is known, as Daenerys says in Game of Thrones, or I guess it's said to Daenerys. But anyway, uh, Andy is an incredibly adept and doesn't overstate and doesn't just play, you know, cheap political tricks on air so he can get more airtime. He's very astute and fair-minded and precise in his analysis. And his point about how for a money laundering charge, there would need to be proof that what Manafort did was illegal and that he knew it was illegal, meaning the work that got him the money. How the heck do they think they're going to prove that? What, they're going to interview? And, and we don't, what would that even be? What would even fall into that category of political consultant work abroad for somebody that you know, is is so sketchy that it's going to be illegal. First of all, why would he, he wouldn't? There's nothing. I can't even think of what the acts would be that. I mean, he's not paying people off. He's not trying to get construction projects for a, an oil pipeline somewhere, you know, in in Azerbaijan or Kazakhstan or something. Right. I mean, he's he's yeah. Is he is he involved with shady characters? So is Podesta's brother. So this whole like shady characters, the, the, one of the biggest, and I know I'm I'm throwing a lot at you here. So I'm gonna I'm gonna set it back into neutral. I'm gonna cool the jets. But one of the biggest 
problems that I have with the way that the press has been reporting on all of these stories has to do with the notion of ties, meaning that someone is tied to someone, that someone is Kremlin tied, in effect, because what? They're Russian and prominent in Russia in some business capacity? Someone is Kremlin tied because they, at one point, worked for the Russian government? Someone is Kremlin, I mean, go down the list of what constitutes, this guy, Papadopoulos, is, this guy is, look, he's, he got in over, he got it in over his head, he got ahead of his skis, he's a fantasist. And they're making it sound like, you know, oh, maybe he's the one who's trying to organize a conspiracy. I mean, the Russians maybe would feed this guy disinformation. The Russians literally give disinformation out like candy for free. They're just handing it out to anybody. The dossier certainly proves that, right? The Russians will give disinformation to anyone. Does this, did this guy Papadopoulos know somebody who maybe somewhere along the line may have been, um, you know, able to get him information from the, I mean, it's just, the press has lost their mind, everybody. I mean, they have put so much into this. They have risked so much of their credibility that it's just not possible. It's not feasible for them at this point to step back and say, you know what? We were wrong. They're never going to do that anyway. I, I, w- I want to go on record. I, I kind of want to do a segment on air where I just give you some sound bites that I think you can expect at the conclusion of the Mueller investigation. Um, I want to give you some sound bites about that because I think we can already tell now at the end of Mueller, if there are no more, and I should know, maybe Podesta is going to get prosecuted. If there are no more prosecutions at all, and there is no big conspiracy unearthed, and the collusion thing just collapses under the weight of its own crap. Then the media will just say, we didn't look hard enough. We didn't find enough. The Trump administration, Trump's tweets prevented there uh, from being a fair accounting here, a fair investigation. Trump tainted the process. Trump's threats implicit or otherwise, to fire Mueller or the media or or Fox News is reporting on this, or they will find some boogeyman that is an acceptable means of distracting the left and the Democrats, because they're going to want to believe it. They're going to find something to say, yeah, you know what, it wasn't, it wasn't anything big. It wasn't our thing. So those are my thoughts on where this on where this all stands now. Uh, that's where I, I see this all heading. Uh, they're going to say, they're, they're, uh, so that's a, a project that I'll have to think about for the future here, that the investigation, uh, the Mueller investigation, no matter, no matter how it turns out, no matter what happens as a result of the Mueller investigation, unless it is, a, a huge surprise to me and is deeply damaging to actually to Trump himself, which we saw none of that with Manafort. They're just going to move on from it and say, yeah, you know what? Or I shouldn't say move on from it. They're going to move to another level on it and say, well, we just haven't found the truth yet. All right. We'll be back with much more on Mueller, as well as any updates on this terror attack in New York City right after the break. I just heard from a uh, law enforcement source. Unlike a lot of the people that you see on TV, my law enforcement sources tend to be friends or you know people that I know. 
but a law enforcement source who told me that uh, they're it, it, unspecified and uncorroborated right now, but that they already are uh, saying that there's paraphernalia of the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda associated with this individual. As I was saying, I did just hear this from a source of mine and who is, uh, let's say, close enough to the investigation that I trust what he is telling me. He said it is not confirmed yet, and I don't have specifics on where, but let's all understand. They've ID'd this guy. They've got his driver's license. They've got him in custody. They know where he lives. I mean, they, you know. And there are, there are, I'm sure they're already in his, in his home uh, and going through that with a fine-tooth comb. So, you know, there, there is, I'm already seeing reports, or I shouldn't say, pardon me, scratch that, not that I'm already seeing reports. I'm already hearing from a source of mine that there uh, is paraphernalia relating to, now they may have found like a, a black flag, uh, like with the Shahada on it. There's not, you know, there's different, jihadist flags out there and there's there's the a general islamist flag i I don't know what i don't even know what that means i'm just telling you what i was told which lines up with everything we've heard so far with regard to the ideology and the motive behind the attack but i am uh, told by a law enforcement source of mine that they uh they've already now you know could be uh, Al-Qaeda websites or ISIS-affiliated uh, websites or something that he has been looking at on his computer. But there's already some, you can expect there to be more of this, some connection to extremist propaganda, jihadist propaganda, and this individual involved in this attack. So um, that is where we are right now on this. If I have more for you other than just the updates we've already given you, obviously, um, I'll bring that into the discussion. I, I'm also always amazed at, this is just a side note, because I sit in here and I have all these uh, screens on, on mute, which allows me to, as I'm talking to you, make sure that I stay on top of uh, breaking events. I also have my team here, Ty and Amy, sending me information throughout the course of the show, so that as, as soon as something breaks, I have it, I can share it with you. Uh, but I'm just I'm amazed at, uh, I'm amazed that there are so many people who go on TV to talk about this who don't really know anything about it, who are uh, were in government maybe pre-9-11 and not afterwards. Uh, you know, we're in uh, a, a branch of the military and, and left in like 1993 or something, and then they're on TV talking about the modern incarnation of the Islamic State's jihad. It's given how many people we've had Dealing with this problem in recent years in this country and given how many people we have had, how many Americans have fought against jihadism abroad in Iraq, Afghanistan and elsewhere. I do think that there should be some basic uh, bar that should be passed before we're holding people up as experts on this subject matter. I'm amazed at some of the stuff that I see in here. I'm like, where does this person this person come from? How How is this? Relevant to the discussion, but there we have it. Um, anyway, that's an aside, but I, without naming names, I see all the people that are popping up on TV. I'm like, well, what is the the connection here is is what exactly to the analysis of these events? I, I think I will switch and, you know, just to give you a sense of what we were going to talk, the whole show changed today. Uh, we were going to have Eric Metaxas on to talk about his book on Martin Luther 
because today is the anniversary of the nailing of the 95 theses onto the uh, the door of the cathedral that led to the Protestant Reformation, the beginning of the Protestant Reformation in Europe, which was a profoundly important moment in the history of not just the European and Western world, but of the entire world in many ways. Right? Changed the course of history. Those 95 theses nailed to the cathedral door. Uh, we will hopefully have Eric back later on in the week to talk to us about his book. And I suppose that a, in a way you can, at least we, we are taking a brief moment here to commemorate the 500th anniversary of the, um, the 500th anniversary of the nailing of the 95 theses onto the cathedral wall. So uh, there's that. I also have decided that, you know what, there's nothing. Oh, wait. I was trying to see here. Car surrounded at Persaic, New Jersey, Home Depot. I saw that on the screen there. I don't know what they're. Look, they're just looking in. They're looking into everything this guy touched in this terrorist attack in New York City. So they're going to be following up on lots of leads. I don't see any. This, there's nothing that indicates this individual was sophisticated enough, a terrorist, to try and build a bomb somewhere else. Or I mean, that doesn't mean they shouldn't take precautions and look at it, but I don't see anything to indicate that, that this uh, Saipov, the identified terrorist here who's in custody, would have done anything like that. Uh, so with your, with your permission, my friends, uh, I, when we come back after this break, would like to talk to you. It is Halloween. We've been talking a lot about the terrorist act today. I want to take some time to share with you the story of the real Dracula, which I think is a fascinating historical a tale that does not get nearly enough attention and also it falls into the category of cross versus crescent uh, battles and, and that struggle, that many century struggle between the Ottoman Empire and Europe, in the case of Europe for survival, in the case of the Ottoman Empire for supremacy. So I think there's a an ideological transition that's easy to make here for our history segment. So uh, with your... Uh, with your permission, I will move on when we come back after this break to talk to you about the real Dracula and have some moments here to think about Halloween, and then we'll maybe get into some uh, updates on this uh, attack before we close out the show and talk about the uh, Mueller investigation where all that's going. So a very different show today, obviously, than I was anticipating, and uh, I appreciate all of your supportive and kind comments and thoughts on Facebook and elsewhere. So thank you very much for all of that. Uh, we'll come back and talk about Vlad the Impaler, also known as Vlad Dracula. You are no doubt familiar with vampires, my friends. You have certainly seen depictions of them in pop culture. In fact, it seems that in uh, recent years, vampires have become a, uh, a pop culture staple. There are vampire shows of all kinds. There's True Blood on HBO. There's the Twilight series for teens or tweens or young adolescents or whatever. Uh, there are all different kinds of, you know, memoirs of a vampire. I mean, there's Diary of a Vampire. You think of a vampire conceit and you'll you'll come up with a show. There's probably already been one. Um, but the most famous of all time was certainly Bram Stoker's 1897 masterpiece, Dracula. And from that, we have the timeless fictional character of a count in 
Transylvania who would say things like, I want to drink your blood and all of this. Right? And then we even have Count Chocula. I mean, there's all kinds of different uh, iterations of the the Count, right? The Count from Sesame Street. So Dracula is one of the most famous uh, characters from the fictional English literature canon. He is uh, he is truly timeless. And 1897 was when Bram Stoker, an Anglo-Irish writer, uh, put together his masterpiece. And I would recommend to you, by the way, actually going back and reading the original Dracula. It holds up very, very well. And I'll get back into that in a few moments. But what you may not know is that the character of Dracula from the Bram Stoker classic, uh, the vampire Count Dracula, was based on a real historical figure, one who played a very important role at one point in the middle of the 15th century in the wars between the Christian kingdoms of Eastern Europe and the Ottoman Empire. I've talked to you before on this show about the Siege of Malta. I've talked to you about the Battle of Lepanto in 1571. There were efforts over centuries to establish a forward operating base, to, to secure a beachhead for the full-scale invasion of Europe by the Muslim Ottoman forces of the Sultan with the ultimate conquest of all of Christendom as the goal. That is what the Ottomans were attempting to achieve. And... Before I get into the background of the the real Count Dracula, if you will, the original uh, historical figure known as Vlad the Impaler or Vlad Tepes, uh, and I'll get into the derivation of his name Dracula as well in a moment. Uh, first, you must note that there was a cataclysmic event in the eyes of uh, Europeans of Christendom at that time, because remember, the New World, New World had not yet been discovered. There, there were no... Uh, Christians living in colonies in North and South America, nor had the missionaries spread uh, quite as far as they would later on with the discoveries from the, from well, the age of discovery. Um, so Christendom was Europe, really, at the time, as well as the Eastern Byzantine Empire, the Eastern Orthodox Christian Empire, which was eradicated by the Islamic conquest. And a critical point in that jihad, because that is what they called it, was the Siege and fall of Constantinople in 1453, right in the middle of Vlad the Impaler's life. And that had a profound effect on, well, what he would end up doing himself. So Vlad uh, was the son of a nobleman in what is modern day Romania. In fact, his father was Dracul, called Dracul, Vlad Dracul. Dracula is just the term for the son of. So the Dracula that was the basis for the character of the vampire Count Dracula was actually the son of Vlad Dracul. And he was the, uh, his father was part of these continuous uh, military fights, these sort of squabbles between princes over territory and over villages in what is today uh, Romania and Hungary. And this is, and Eastern, what do you think of today is Eastern Europe and the Balkans. Now, this is critical because the frontier of Ottoman conquest in the 15th century was, in fact, what is today the Balkans. And that's also why you have these uh, tectonic 
plates of different religions, if you will, rubbing up against each other in the Balkans. And that even has led to conflict in the uh, 20th and into the 21st century. But the Ottomans extended their rule well into what we know of as the Balkans. And they were hoping to use the Danube as a waterway for the future conquest of all of Europe. The Danube runs like an artery from the Black Sea right through the center of Europe all the way into Germany and from Germany, just a hop, skip and a jump to France and England. If you could establish control of strategic ports uh, points on the Danube, you'd be able to invade and take over uh, the European heartland. So Dracula was on the frontier and he got a lesson in this at a very young age because his father, like many of the Christian princes of the time, remember he's, he's born in, uh, uh, well, he's born in the mid-early 15th century, uh, 1430-ish, not quite clear. Uh, and his father, as I said, was a nobleman. He wasn't the first son. In fact, he, Dracula had a brother named Radu, who was known as Radu the Handsome. And in order to pay homage to the Turkish sultan, Dracula's dad, who was a nobleman in what is Wallachia, which is present-day Romania. People always think of Dracula and Transylvania, but Wallachia really played a, or Wallachia, I guess, if you're going to go with the Eastern European translation, I'm not sure, or Eastern European pronunciation. Uh, Wallachia is central to the Dracula family or the Dracul family's fortunes. So they go to the Sultan. Dracula and his father go, and Radu as well. And the Sultan seizes uh, Dracula, Vlad, Dracula, and his brother Radu, and keeps them in the Ottoman court. So he is held hostage so that his dad, who is a nobleman of uh, Wallachia, uh, his dad will be loyal to the Sultan because some of the Christian princes who were on the frontier of where the Ottoman conquest had gotten and where the Christian states were still fighting back were willing to have temporary truces, even alliances with the Sultan. They would use the Sultan and Ottoman forces against their rivals in the area. And Dracula's dad was no different in that respect. So he goes to the Sultan uh, to pay homage, and the Sultan seizes Dracula and his brother and holds them in the Ottoman court for a number of years. And he learns... Turkish, and he learns all about the Ottoman way of warfare. These are very important skills for him later on. And then Dracula, with the blessing of the Sultan, after a time, returns home to Wallachia to establish his rule. And his first fights are, in fact, with the other Christian princes in the area. And now this is where, once he establishes, with the Sultan's blessing, his rule over Wallachia, Dracula, the basis for Count Dracula, uh, Dracula is known. Oh, wait, one more note on his name. Dracul comes from the Order of the Dragon, which his father was a part of, which was a Christian crusading society. They don't teach enough about this stuff in school, but they should learn. Children should learn about the Order of the Teutonic Knights and the Knights of St. John. The Order of the Dragon was also a Christian crusader group fighting against fighting against the. Islamic conquest, fighting against the Ottoman Empire. So Dracula was quite literally a crusader, as was his father. He was part of the Order of the Dragon. But in Romanian, Dracul, the word Dracul also means devil. 
So that makes things, from a PR perspective, a little harder for Dracula later on. So he comes home, and in Wallachia, he establishes his rule and is dealing with the day-to-day headaches of, of the crown, but also becomes known for a level of brutality and bloodthirstiness that was shocking even at the time. And keep in mind that for the Ottoman sultans, the most powerful individual in this part of the world, in the world at the time, would have been the Ottoman sultan. And it was commonplace for the Ottoman sultan to have any of his brothers, uh, who, any of his brothers in the palace uh, strangle the moment that he ascended to power, no matter how young. Didn't matter what the age was. All of his possible rivals to be killed right away. This was a brutal time, a brutal period. But it was specifically for the punishment of impalement, which the Turks were well known for using, but also some Christians had picked up from the Turks. That was where Vlad got his name, Vlad the Impaler, which is what most people think of when they are asked, well, where does Dracula come from? I don't have to, I think, explain too much about how this works, but it's a long, sharp stick that is inserted uh, through the, the buttocks and then somebody is raised up in the air and they often slowly die a very horrible, agonizing death. And the estimates from the period are that in total, all the, and Vlad didn't just limit himself to that. In total, all the different forms of torture that Vlad the Impaler used were responsible for the deaths of, on the low end, 30 or 40,000 people. As many as 100,000, some historians say, if you include his military operations and the slaughter of whole villages, but impalement certainly in the thousands, in the low tens of thousands. He liked to watch the impalement proceedings himself and was known for even executing on the spot individuals who displeased him in the smallest possible way. He liked to pose riddles to those who had come before him, members of his own court, visiting dignitaries. And depending on their response, he, they would either get a, a smile and perhaps a, a night's stay in the palace at Tergoviste, uh, or they would be impaled on the spot, or worse in some cases, if there is such a thing as worse. He had visiting dignitaries from Florence very famously executed because they would not, they removed their hats, but not their skull caps. He found that offensive, and so he had three nails driven into the top of the head of each visiting dignitary from Florence so that they would never have to worry about losing their skull cap in his presence again, executed right on the spot. The, it is rare to read, go back in history and read detailed accounts of torture, mutilation, and savage, savage sadism of the scale that you will read if you go back into, as I have, some of the first-hand accounts of the chroniclers of the time of what Dracula did in his court. He executed people for the most trivial offense and in the most sadistic and painful and prolonged fashion that he could. Now, that is what Dracula later became most famous for, but he also was an anti-Ottoman crusader. On the other side of this break, I will tell you about how Dracula may have prevented Further conquest by the Ottomans and could have, in fact, played a role in the uh, in blunting the Ottoman advance into Europe itself and therefore changed history, my friends. More on the real Dracula after this break. So it is Halloween night and we are talking about the real Dracula here for a few minutes. The basis of the uh, 1897 uh, 
novel, timeless classic. And I was telling you that Vlad Tepes, Vlad the Impaler, was a nobleman of Eastern European extraction, son of Dracul, son of the dragon, because of the Christian crusading order of the dragon that they belonged to. In fact, Dracula wore specific, uh, uh, some of his attire was to signify that he was a member of the order of the dragon. Um, And he was a brutal, brutal guy. He's talked about in some of the same, uh, the same context as, you know, Ivan the Terrible or, uh, Louis, the Spider King of France, who was known for hanging young boys from trees or putting them in, uh, putting his enemies in tiny cages and just letting them rot. Uh, so he was a, a an evil individual, but also because of his skills, picked up not just as a nobleman in, in Wallachia and what is now Romania, uh, but also in the court of the Ottoman Sultan, where he was friends. He became friends with Mehmet, who later on be, uh, rose to the role of sultan. So he knew the the caliph, if you will, the head of the caliphate, was personally known to Dracula. And in his role as a nobleman consolidating his power, uh, taking on the boyar class in particular, who think of them as like the swamp of the time. That was the idea, that they were the elites. They were the landowning class, and Dracula hated them. And was always finding excuses to uh, to impale them and to and to murder them. And I didn't tell you one of his one of the worst Dracula historical anecdotes of all is that he invited all of the uh, the transients and vagrants in in, in the area of uh, Turgoviste, which is where he had his palace, which is in Wallachia, not Transylvania. But people always think of Transylvania uh, because of the Borgo Pass, which is written about in Bram Stoker's novel which is where the castle dracula is supposed to be by the way stoker did some real research a lot of what he talks about in terms of the regional cuisine and some of his descriptions of a landscape he researched very much the historical background of dracula in the area that he lived in the real dracula Uh, but now we're talking about oh the the worst incident was he invited all of these uh essentially the paupers in his kingdom into one great hall and fed them this fantastic meal and had all the doors shut and lit the whole thing on fire. Yeah. Dracula. Bad guy. Bad guy. But if you're looking for somebody who is going to stand up against the uh, stand up against the Ottoman Empire, which was also, despite what you may hear from a lot of these scholars of the Near East today, they'll say, oh, it was a, such a progressive and, and pluralistic and tolerant. It was an empire built on conquest and slavery. That is the truth of the, the greatest, most powerful caliphate of all time, the Ottoman Caliphate, built on conquest and slavery. And much of what we think of now as the uh, historical and intellectual achievements that the Ottomans claim as their own were just in areas that they took over that came from the cultures, notably the Byzantine Eastern Orthodox Christian society, that they took by the sword. So, the Ottomans... Uh, require i'm going through now a very there's a very detailed histories of dracula available if you want to read them um, i don't have time to get into all of it today uh, and dracula was imprisoned by a Hunya, by a corvinus and there were he had feuds with uh, uh with uh, hunyadi and there's all this other stuff with the christians and the christian princes in the area that i won't have time for right now i've got a couple of minutes to go through 
the mo- what I think is one of the most interesting parts of Dracula's uh, life, and that is that he was supposed to pay homage to the Sultan. The Sultan sent emissaries, and those emissaries were, as Vlad was known for doing, executed on the spot when they said, you must uh, pay tribute to the Sultan. And that is when the Ottomans decide. And, and then he also invaded Ottoman territory after that. Then the Ottoman Empire decided we are going to Mehmet II. We're going to invade Wallachia, teach this punk Dracula a lesson, and uh, also establish even further the frontiers of the Islamic conquest. Well, uh, he was an adept. Dracula was an adept military commander. And in fact, at the Battle of the Torches, after the Ottomans raised a force of over 100,000, it is believed, uh, the, which, was the, which was an enormous force for the time, uh, Dracula, in, under the cover of darkness, led a cavalry charge into the Ottoman camp uh, at night and attacked them and tried to kill the Sultan Mehmet himself in his tent was unsuccessful and then there were a series of uh, skirmishes after that the Ottomans weren't able to take full control of Wallachia and then Dracula is, like I said he's imprisoned he loses he loses his I, I've got like 30 seconds here to finish off Dracula's life long story short after all after this fighting Dracula ends up uh, well he obviously dies and then the stories about his cruelty become legendary and the bloodlust that he had and the evil of Dracula became a story that people would tell their children and this is and but it wasn't until bram stoker in 1897 that they actually combined the notion of a vampire or in the old romanian a strigoi with that of the actual historical figure of dracula who was a crusader fighting against the ottomans and a very nasty guy but an interesting guy and that my friends on this halloween night is a very brief history of the real dracula i have some thoughts on the uh, day's events all right, we've got updates here, a news conference. Here it is. Hey, afternoon, everybody. Steve, we good? Yes. All right. Just keep in mind, this incident occurred a little more than two hours ago, so all the information that we're giving you right now is preliminary and subject to change. After I speak, you're going to hear from uh, Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio, um, Bill Sweeney from the assistant director in charge of the New York FBI offices standing up here with me, too. We have members of my executive staff. We have Cy Vance and uh, members of the state police. First, I just want to say that today there was a loss of innocent life in Lower Manhattan. The dead and injured were just going about their days, heading home from work or from school or enjoying the afternoon sun on bicycles. This is a tragedy of the greatest magnitude for many people, for many families here in New York City and beyond today. I want to commend a response for our NYPD officer that was on post near the location who stopped the carnage moments after it began. Also, work of the, the work of the first responders, including the fire department and EMS personnel, surely helped save additional lives. Uh, following this very closely throughout the course of the show, just uh, to to recap where we are here, uh, we know so far that this was an act of terror. This was terrorism in New York City. Uh, the individual allegedly yelled uh, "Allahu Akbar." He took a large, uh, heavy truck. And decided that he would try to mow down as many innocent civilians with it as possible. And uh, we are going to continue to follow these facts as, as they come in. But right now, a, a terrorist attack in New York City. 
uh, six fatalities, more critically wounded in the hospital, and it just it just hits home. Uh, this is this is my hometown. Uh, this is where I was born and raised. This is the city that I worked specifically in counterterrorism to try and help defend some years ago. And there's just not not much that can be done to thwart this kind of low tech attack, as as I've been saying on the show, um, as we are here with uh, the terrible news to share with all of you about this terrorist incident here, terrorist attack here in New York City. Uh, in, individual screamed, uh, Allahu Akbar, he had a, uh, a paintball gun and a BB gun. We're always worried about here in this town and across the country. Someone radicalizes. We don't know enough about the individual right now. We don't know much about his background, but someone uh, who radicalizes, and then we find ourselves looking back and thinking, what could have been done? How could we have prevented this? And the truth is that these incidents of evil are very difficult to stop at the operational phase. Once somebody has decided, once they have uh, decided to radicalize and go forward with this kind of an attack, if you don't stop them when they are in the planning phase, at the operational phase, because a vehicle is such a simple thing. We all drive cars, right? This is not... You don't need any small arms training. You don't need any familiarity with explosives. All you need to pull off this kind of an attack is a bloodlust, is a desire to just kill men, women, and children because of, and this, I I know it's early with regard to the specifics here on motive other than it's a terrorist incident. The guy's yelling Allahu Akbar. I think we're all pretty clear. This is jihadism, unless there's something, unless there is something that, you know, gets added into this to let us know, was it in favor of a certain group? Was this in support of ISIS or was this a decision uh, that was made in support of Al Qaeda? You know, it could be any number of things. Right. Uh, This guy could be self-radicalized and could oppose some uh, Trump policy somewhere. It could decide that because he he thinks that Trump is is anti-Muslim, he's going to prove He's going to prove how wrong Trump is by killing lots of people, eight people so far. I mean, you you don't know. You don't know the specifics just yet because they haven't uh, pulled apart the uh, background information on him. They haven't pulled apart his social media profile, and we don't yet have uh, that available to us to let us know what was out there for us to see. Um, Does not look like there is any evidence of an additional threat, although there's a lot of continued vigilance here in New York City. Um, There's the possibility of accelerated attack planning elsewhere in the country, not just because somebody may have connectivity here in New York City, more likely, but anywhere, because if this individual had connectivity to someone else, they may decide, well, I've got to go now before law enforcement kicks in my door. So we've seen that in some of the mass casualty terror attacks in Europe. It could happen here. I think it's unlikely. The the realities of dealing with terrorism in the context of jihadist terrorism specifically, but just having a hateful, anti-American, often anti-Semitic and, you know, anti-Western thoughts 
is not a crime, even if you share on Facebook that, you know, you, you hope that the Islamic State uh, manages to have a resurgence and start defeating the American led coalition or, you know, whatever that's disgusting and hateful, but not necessarily illegal. And the problem is that the complexity of some of these terrorist incidents, the complexity of these attacks is often what trips up the terrorist. So the moment you take complexity out of it, and that means multiple individuals, it means the operational security you must have in a cell to prevent just all you need is one member of the cell to get caught. And then all the rest of them are oftentimes rolled up as well. If it's one individual who does not try to buy a lot of precursors for uh, a, a major explosive, who who does not try to uh, get weapons illegally or, you know, those are often the tripwires that stop these incidents uh, the, the terrorists are getting more adept at going low tech. They understand that one or two individuals driving large, heavy vehicles can be a much more effective weapon. A much higher casualty count will come from it than getting together three or four individuals who you know try to build a, a truck full of explosives and drive, drive it into a vehicle. If they pull that off, they may have a mass casualty incident, but it may very well turn out to be something like the Faisal Shahzad case, the so-called Times Square bomber of 2010. The reason that no one was even hurt in that incident, which was a terrorist attack in New York City in broad daylight on a Saturday you know, afternoon, was because the bomb maker, Faisal Shahzad, didn't know what he was doing. So we got lucky, but we're not always going to get lucky as we see. Our allies aren't going to get lucky. The Europeans have suffered uh, horrific atrocities at the hands of these jihadists. And uh, we are continuing to follow this as closely as we can with, with any updates. We'll give them to you throughout the show. Again, eight dead terrorist attack here in New York City. We'll have more analysis and more thoughts on this as we continue on with the show. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. Uh, we'll be back with more right after this break. All right, everybody, for some legal expertise on the uh, Mueller indictments and what we are, what we can take from those charges so far, we're joined now by Emily Campagno. She is a uh, legal and sports business analyst attorney. Uh, Emily, great to have you on. Thanks so much for having me on tonight. Pleasure so, I mean, we had Andy McCarthy, who's a former assistant U.S. attorney here in New York, on yesterday, and Andy was saying that there could be more, right? Meaning that maybe they do have him on a tax evasion charge, but they just didn't go with that yet. But based on the 12 count indictment, uh, he said, and based on my layperson reading of it, it, it looks like uh, Mueller's team's going to have a fight on their hand with Manafort. Yes, exactly. And I think the most important takeaway for listeners right now is that just at its heart, this indictment, it, it just it really describes in incredible detail the lobbying work in the Ukraine. And at its heart, it's basically an unregistered lobbying effort and then a huge money laundering scheme. And the actual document, the indictment, covered 
between 2005 and 2016. But the actual counts and the charges, especially for the failure to file, that's from just 2011 to 2014. And so, you know, frankly, moving forward, there was a lot of forensic accounting that was present in the indictment that is actually fascinating to me that the investigatory team compiled in technically what was a short amount of time in Fed time. And that the fact that we didn't see anything more, to me, speaks more volumes than what we did see. Emily, I wonder, uh, from from your perspective, is is this evidence of an overly broad uh, effort from Mueller's special counsel and and the whole from Mueller as special counsel and the whole team? It feels like this invest not feels like this investigation had a mandate to find out about Russia collusion with regard to the election and Paul Manafort not declaring a bank account from 2000 and, and you know, whatever it is, 2012, uh, having to do with his political work overseas, does not feel in any way related. I agree. You are right. This is essentially an ancillary topic. And to me, this is how I read it, that this team was comprised of 17 attorneys, all but one, to my understanding, were former prosecutors. And Prosecutors are obviously commendable um, and obviously necessary, but they are a certain breed and a certain culture. And it is a goal first mentality and fill in the blanks and make it work and fit it in. They're not advisory attorneys. They're not investigatory attorneys. It's different, right? There are, there are numerous different types of attorneys. And to me, based on the, um, you know, identities of the team itself, then it's not surprising that something had to come of it, number one. And number two, that as you said, what's most indicative is the fact that this is actually an ancillary charge. And I've heard many people express the viewpoint of, well, this must mean that they want to get him under wraps so they can squeeze him. You know, this, this must mean that they are then taking them onto their side. But that's not at all what this means. Frankly, something that the government always takes incredibly seriously is money and their, uh, their um, understanding of stolen money, anything that belongs to them. And so to me, this is a totally run-of-the-mill um, not yet evasion, but a fraudulent indictment where, or an indictment on fraud, where basically they saw millions of dollars that was laundered, and therefore they're coming after it like rabid dogs. And the fact that so much time was spent on this, albeit separate from that main mandate, again, yes, it speaks volumes. Is there any way in which, I mean, I, I just wonder, how can we... From the Mueller, I mean, from the Manafort, I keep their names, the M's, the, from a Manafort defense team perspective, uh, the failure to register as a foreign agent, I, I know about this from my time in, in government, just as something people in D.C. talk about. That's just not a, a big deal. I mean, it, yeah, it's a crime, but it's a crime the way the Logan Act's a crime, which is not something that anybody actually goes to prison. You know, there are crimes and there are crimes, as you know. Uh, the money laundering, though, is is a big deal, and the failure to disclose the accounts, foreign accounts abroad, that seems like a pretty black and white issue. So what do you think the Manafort defense on the specifics of the having cash overseas that you're not declaring, what could that be? Honestly, if I were him or if I were his counsel, I would advise him to plea. Here's why. When you get into the federal prison system and you see the white collar crime inmates, overwhelmingly, if anything is above two, three years, they went to trial. 
Juries do not take kindly to white-collar criminal defendants, nor do judges. For some reason in this country, that's how it plays out in the court system. But when you see people in there for two or three years, yes, that's a long time. But in the grand scheme of things, it's not. So um, in terms of his, his defense, first and foremost, I would absolutely um, audit every single thing that the government puts in front of me to make sure those numbers are correct. That's number one. Number two, I would negotiate with the prosecutors and negotiate it down, wheedle those charges down to less, and then, again, accept a plea because I think just statistically and historically, the worst thing you can do, unfortunately, with charges like these is to fight them because that's when you get the large sentences. But Again, behind closed doors, I'm sure that they can whittle this down. And that goes back to, as well, that culture I was talking about earlier, the kind of prosecutorial culture, which is getting a notch on the belt, the goal first. Once you are in this trap, it's difficult to extrapolate yourself from it. But here it would behoove him to cooperate as soon as possible, get immediately into the details, into the negotiations back and forth, and preserve whatever licensees he needs to maintain. I want to, I just, I'm wondering, and I know that this is, Extrapolating, this is going uh, beyond the, the specifics of, of where we are right now. But but is it at least feasible? Is it possible that uh, the in this case that that Mueller, the prosecutors here, may say, you know what, if he doesn't if he doesn't have anything on Trump, we're not even going to really offer him a deal. We want to take this to trial. Is, is there any is there any future in which you you could foresee that if they don't have? If he doesn't have anything to offer up in exchange, are they still going to give him a, a, a plea deal, you think? Oh, yes. Um, yes, they will. I mean, I know over, what is it, over 97% of federal cases go to are, are, are pleaded out instead of actually go to trial. But it, it, to make a, make a political statement here, which I know he's not supposed to do, I feel like maybe they, but you're saying no. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, and of course there's always that possibility, but given the... Um, Given the size of these allegations, not the necessarily how they read on our conscience of how you know terrible they are. It's, it's not murder we're talking about, but it's a lot of money. And again, the government cares about a lot of money. So to me, I especially when they think some of it's their money, Emily, right? Exactly. And so to me, the prosecutors viewing this in a vacuum, it is its own valuable story here. And you are right that if he cannot provide anything on the president, which seems to me, you know, a very low risk, obviously, at this point. He still is his own fish to fry. And any any universe the prosecution comes at, right, every case is its own universe, um, then they'll seek to maximize their investment, too, because taking it to trial is expensive and also risks their um, their history and their score. So even if they see this as a slam dunk, a lot of that might be just what they're bringing to the negotiating table. So, yes, it behooves them to come to an agreement Regardless, because then it goes before the judge as, look, we came to this agreement and this defendant pled to something. We weren't out of left field. And if I could throw in for a second for our listeners, you know, this judge or the one on the indictment charges anyway, Judge Amy Berman Jackson, she was confirmed by the Senate 97 to 0 after being appointed by Barack Obama. And I want to point out that she presided over the wrongful death case against Hillary Clinton this year by the parents of the two Americans killed in Benghazi. She dismissed it. So um, she has an interesting history, but, uh, I, you know, I'm not going so far as to say that she's biased in any way. Of course not. But I just wanted to throw that out there so that 
the listeners have some context in terms of who we're dealing with because we've covered who the who the that team was compiled of, obviously. But I'd like them to hear about the judge too. All right, Emily Campagno, sport uh, business and uh, legal analyst, and you can go to her website emilycampagno.com for more for analysis. Emily, always great to have you. Come back soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Until tomorrow, Shields High.